Hello from Los Angeles. I just saw the Wonder Woman movie and I am so inspired that I asked producer Chris and producer Ponyo if we could rebroadcast my interview from last year with Trina Robbins. Trina Robbins was the second woman ever to write a Wonder Woman comic. She's also the pioneer of women's comics, which was a feminist anthology in the 70s. Uh, you'll hear more about her later. But I wanted to tell you a couple things. One is that I'm going to interview Trina and Mary Wings and cartoonist Lee Mars on June 22nd at Root Division in San Francisco. It's from 6 to 8 p.m. and it is in conjunction with an exhibition called Wonder celebrating women's efforts in the underground comics movement. Again, that's June 22nd at Root Division in San Francisco from 6 to 8 p.m. Okay, what else do I want to tell you? Well, you can pre-order Fetch very soon, probably as soon as you listen to this episode. I'm going to be posting a link on my Instagram, on my Facebook, on my Twitter feed, and if you click this link to pre-order it, a portion of the proceeds will go to the Oregon Humane Society and you will get a special neckerchief that says, don't pet me. And if you're one of my Patreons, I will make you um, a hand-drawn book plate for your book. So keep your eyeballs out for that. Follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Patreon, and I will post links there. And this will be coming up either today or early next week. I think that's it. I hope you really enjoy the show. The last thing I want to tell you is we recorded it pre-Trump, so we're a little bit more hopeful than we would have been. <laughs> anyway, enjoy my talk with Trina Robbins. Today on Sagittarian Matters, women's comics pioneer and writer of some Wonder Woman comics, Trina Robbins. Stay tuned. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being on the podcast. I am delighted. I'm so happy this book came out. These books. I am so happy they came out. Yes. So, um, you know, but I will tell my listeners that I met you because I wanted to put out these books a couple of years ago after um, I was at the Center for Cartoon Studies and Steve Bissett lent me a giant stack of women's comics and It Ain't Me Babe and Tits and Glitz. And it was the best thing I had ever read. And I couldn't believe that they weren't reprinted in full. So then I was like, I have to go track down Trina Robbins because I have to make sure these get put out. And then we went to breakfast and then you said, Fanagraphics is already doing it. And I felt so relieved. Yes, of course. Everything good eventually gets reprinted. Thank God. Um, let's start way, way, way back and then we'll come to the present. Um, so I, even now as a, female cartoonist I feel like I feel the repercussions of our crumb style misogyny kind of around me and in, in the psyches of cartoonists that I encounter so I want you you oh I'm sorry you think it's still there tell me give me some examples I don't know I if think you don't mind me interviewing you go on please interview me <laughs> um uh, I guess just the idea of a lot of 
a lot of people hold him in very high regard because he's an excellent draftsman and because he helped originate underground cartoon comics. But yes. his images are so violent and so intense that it's really hard for me to hear people talk about how he's the best cartoonist ever when I think about all the people that are kind of squashed down in his work or, you know, shown poorly in his work. But is that misogyny? I don't I th- I don't know. It's it I don't know. The idea of somebody saying like this borderline racist art or this like sexist art is one of my favorite artists makes me feel weird. I guess. I really wonder how many people have seen it was it was his early stuff, the stuff he did in the 70s and 80s that was the most offensive. And I wonder how many people have seen that aside from a group of aging fans. That's a that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, those things are burned into my mind as strong comics can be. So, those are things I think about when people are like worshiping at the altar of this person. Yeah. But so okay. Well, I'll go ahead. No, well, I mean, it's undeniable that he's an excellent draftsman and a really good artist. Uh, but it's also undeniable that in the 70s and 80s, he he drew stuff that basically, unfortunately, influenced the underground so that the entire underground, not the entire, but an awful lot of the underground, felt they had to do misogynist, violently misogynist stuff, too. Well, so then I wonder for you, I mean, that seems that seems like a very unwelcoming climate for female cartoonists or people of color. So then how did you make your space? It was extremely unwelcoming. And the fact that I objected to this kind of art, not just crumbs, but underground in general, that I said rape isn't funny, torture and and degradation of women is not funny and they would say well you have no sense of humor and it's just satire um so that didn't make me popular with the guys and they didn't invite me into their books or into their social lives or into their parties um so uh well okay what period are we talking about now I guess I was thinking about the climate of when you started women's comics or when you started working with an ain't me babe so the very earliest 70s. So what happened in 1970 was, I mean, these guys were not printing me. Uh, but the I had come from New York to San Francisco, uh, which was supposed to be the mecca of underground comics. And luckily, what happened was the underground newspapers heard I was here, that I was in town. And they phoned me and asked me to contribute to their newspapers. So I wound up... Um, First, I would come, uh, it was the Berkeley Tribe, the Red Mountain Tribe, which was an an offshoot of the Berkeley Barb. And every, um, I guess every couple of weeks when they would do their layouts and paste-ups, I would come to the office and just draw little spot illustrations, you know, right there. You know, we, we need this, we need an illustration this size, and I would just draw it. And, you know, I think I was paid the grand sum of like $20. I don't remember now, but it was not a lot of money. But that wasn't the point because I needed to be printed and I needed someone to want to publish me. Um, And it was shortly after that that I saw the first issue of It Ain't Me, Babe, which I have since 
found out was the very first uh, feminist underground newspaper in the country. And I had not realized that. I thought it was the first in the West Coast. Um, but it was the first in the country. And I phoned them and I said, you know, I'd like to contribute. Um, and we met at a bean in Golden Gate Park. And I was wearing a T-shirt I had designed that had an angry-looking superheroine on it and said, Super Sister, and they thought the T-shirt was really cool. I've looked for the T-shirt. I can't find it. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in the house. But anyway, they said, yes, join us. So at that point, I was, you know, I said a tearful, really not a tearful, but a thank you, a thankful goodbye to the Red Mountain tribe and started going attending layout and paste up days at the um at it ain't me babe in berkeley um i did a comic for them a back page comic i did a number of covers and a number of interior illustrators and it was really it was great to work with people i felt good about you know who were feminists it was fantastic and at a certain point i finally felt brave enough with with the the moral support of these women that I could put together the world's first, the universe, universe's first, the world's first, um, all woman comic book. And that was at Ain't Me Babe, 1970. Oh my God. I feel you're like a, a dreamboat to me. Like the idea that you did these things just fills me with so much joy as, as a female cartoonist. You know, any of these things without role models and without people treading the path before me, it's, it's harder to be able to see what is possible. It's very hard to see what's possible. Not anymore, though. No, we're in a really different time. And I, I feel like I almost have to go out of my way to tell students or younger people, like, it wasn't that long ago that things were radically different. 1970 to me seems like yesterday. But it's fantastic. You know, never in my wildest dreams, I swear to you, had I ever dreamed that there would be so many women in comics that there would be more women publishing graphic novels than men. And that is fantastic. Is that the case right now? Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. Um, I wanted, of course, to talk about how you published the first lesbian comic. Ah, uh, yes. Sandy comes out. Sandy comes out. Um, and then did you get guff from lesbians for publishing the first lesbian comic or were they happy? Because you were not a lesbian, uh, but it was about a lesbian. Okay. Okay, Sandy was my roommate. And I just, I, for the first issue of women's comics, I thought it would be cool to tell her story. <clears throat> so I, excuse me. So I really did this with Sandy's approval. And in fact, I gave her the originals once the story was published. And which is kind of sad because Sandy died in Seattle and I don't know what happened to the originals. Mm. Um, yeah, I know. And I'm sad. I mean, I'm just sad that Sandy died to start with and that my originals are lost on top of that. But anyway, um, it was with Sandy's approval. She even suggested some of the, the, what the captions and the, what would go into the word balloons in certain parts. Um, and when I did it, I wasn't thinking in terms of, gee, this is the first comic about a lesbian. I was just thinking, I want to tell Sandy's story. It, the first comic about a lesbian bit didn't 
didn't even occur to me until many years later when people were saying, wow, first comic about a lesbian. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I, you know, I don't know about most of the feedback, but I do know my friend Mary Wings, who published, self-published the first lesbian, all lesbian comic book by her, Come Out Comics, and also Dyke Shorts. Um, and I do know that Mary read women's comics and saw that comic and was in those days quite indignant and her attitude was humph this is obviously done by a straight woman how dare she how dare she talk about lesbians and so she did you know so that inspired her to do her own book so that's great and of course we're great friends now you know at the queer comics conference last may <clears throat> we were roommates and i had the greatest time with her i had fun with her I was so happy to see you guys there on the panel. And then I had you come to my class at the California College of the Arts. That was such a treat. And was it in your slideshow where you showed the Angela Davis slide? Yes, yes, yes. Did you draw that? that? Yes, of course I drew that. Why would I show it if I hadn't drawn it? I couldn't remember if it was you or Mary that had that. No, it was me. It was the back cover for one of the issues of It Ain't Me, Babe. And the idea was you were supposed to put it up on in your front window to let her know because she was, you know, she was wanted by the police. <clears throat> Excuse me. And nobody knew where she was. So my romantic notion is there she is, you know, walking down the street, you know, with the, her coat collar turned up and she sees the sign and she knocks on the door and whoever you know, has put the sign up, in my case, me, you know, shelters her, shelters her from the cops. (laughs) It was a very romantic notion, but people did put it up. Oh my God, I I wish I had that right now. I would put it in my window. (laughs) (laughs) Even if she was like on on a speaking tour or something. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. If Angela Davis wanted to use my bathroom or have a glass of water. Exactly, Angela, if just... A cup of coffee. You feel the need for a cup of coffee? See my sign? Come on over. (laughs) I'm going to start putting pictures of other people who I would like to stop in in my window, too. (laughs) So soon you won't even be able to see in or see out because I'll have pictures of different (laughs) people. I'll be like, Obama, are you on a a visit? Oh, he's definitely, if he can use my bathroom anytime. (laughs) Would you like to pet a chihuahua? Come into my house. Um, Well, so then I was going to ask, after you started publishing, um, after you started publishing, it ain't me, babe, in women's comics. Did the men come around, or were they threatened by what you were doing? Like, did you have to make your own space and then keep on that, or was there a time when they wanted you in their men's club? Oh, they never wanted me in their men's club, never. Um, but what happened was, you know, in the beginning, it was a small group of guys. I mean, you could count the underground cartoonists in San Francisco on the fingers of, okay, maybe both hands, but that would be it. You wouldn't need any more fingers than that. But as as the comics industry grew larger, as more people, you know, started doing comics, doing their own comics, by the end of the 70s, by even the middle of the 70s, there were a whole bunch of new guys doing comics, and they didn't know that I was supposed to be a man-hating feminazi bitch, so they liked me. Um, and so they invited me into their comics. Oh. So it was really a short period. It was just the beginning of the 70s when I was kind of persona non grata. Oh, wow. And then what happened with um, all the women you were affiliated with? 
Did you all end up sticking together when it came to conventions and publishing or? That was cool, really. Um, you know, because when we did women's comics, there were still so few women in the industry. Um, and the first, um, I guess it was called the Berkeley Con. I don't remember now, but it was the first underground comic convention. And we were all there. and We did a panel. Not only us, but the tits and clits ladies showed up. Because what was so cosmic, it's, it's California really, was that on either side of this state, at the same time, there were women who finally decided they wanted to react to the sexism and misogyny in men's comics by putting out their own comics. And we didn't even know about each other. We didn't know about Tits and Clips till it appeared on the newsstand. And they didn't know about us. And of course, they came to the Berkeley Con, I think it was 1973. And, you know, we all made friends. We loved each other. I love that so much. I love both of those books. I can't even imagine being able to, you just go to the newsstand and then you see all of a sudden, oh, a different radical feminist comic book of people that yes. live a few hours away. Oh, no big deal. Great. And then, so you had uh, Mary Wings and the people that are doing lesbian comics. Yes. And you had women's comics and you had tits and clits. Yes. And you all were allies for each other? I would say so, sure, yeah. I mean, like I said, yeah, there were so few of us in those days that we definitely stuck together. Um, the first com big San Diego comic convention that I went to was 77, and an enormous amount of the women's comics women were there, and as were the tits and clits women, Joyce Farmer and Lynn Shevley. And they, you know, after that, they we, we mostly went to the San Diego conventions every year. Oh, that's so cool. I find a lot of uh, strength in numbers with ladies. Strength in numbers, definitely. Oh, it's so nice to not be alone, yes. And were you the first woman to draw Wonder Woman? Is that true? No. Oh. <laughs> um, Ramona Fraden drew Wonder Woman in, in the Super Friends comic book mm. in the 70s. I have an issue that she signed for me. Oh, because I, I asked my students, I'm teaching a college course right now on comics, and I wanted to know what, what they wanted to know from you. And one of them said, one of them thought that you were the first woman to draw Wonder Woman. They're like, I wonder what that felt like. But you were well, a was, woman to draw Wonder Woman. I was a woman who drew Wonder Woman. I was one of the first. I mean, certainly, I, I don't know if there was someone after Ramona but I wouldn't ever call myself the first. One of the first is fine. That's, I think that's still pretty huge. That's great. And at some point, you stopped drawing comics and focused mostly on writing comics. That's right. How that's long, what I'm doing now. How long did you draw for before you stopped, and why did you stop? I kind of stopped around the early 90s, around the same time that women's comics ended. I had, you know, I never really had a good relationship with the underground, even though later there were more people who liked me. But I just, they tended to not be my kind of people. There was a lot of drug taking, a lot of drinking. I don't drink. I don't, I haven't even smoked pot for years. Last time I smoked pot was when I was getting chemotherapy in, in 09, and it, it does help. Uh, but I haven't smoked it since. I mean, and I don't smoke cigarettes. Um, I'm a healthy person. 
and and they just a lot of them a lot of the underground just was not my crowd as it were and there was a lot of alienation between me and them and women's comics had been my safe place it really was it was a place where I, I was friends with the women cartoonists, where we'd go out for coffee together, we'd hang out, and it, it felt good, and then it ended. And a lot of the women just moved away. And for a brief time, I was doing maybe a single page or two for a couple of other comics, like Angela Bocage put out something called Real Girl, and I did stuff for her. But I wasn't being asked to be in other comics, I didn't have a place to go. And I just, I felt kind of like I didn't, I didn't fit. So, so it got to me, really. So at a certain point, I really couldn't pick up a pencil and look at a piece of paper to draw without feeling very stressed, depressed, um, feelings of anxiety. I mean, it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So I turned to writing, and I love writing. I love writing, and I feel good about it. And people like my writing. I was just having to explain to someone yesterday, you know, sometimes you have to revalidate that comics are literature over and over and over again you know like every few years people think like comics aren't just for kids anymore and like they have that part of hearing that yeah like i'm not i'm sure that i bet you've heard that that news headline probably like 50 times well, you, yeah i mean these people the, the the journalists who write about comics for mainstream newspapers and magazines um they don't know how to start any article about comics without saying, Zach Pow, comics are not for kids anymore. I mean, please, you know, to a certain degree, that was what was wrong with mainstream comics was that they weren't for kids anymore. Yeah. You know, I mean, the 90s, you had the bad girl comics with the, the hyper-sexualized women in their broke back poses. This was definitely not for kids anymore. Yeah. What then? With the, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. With the, yeah, with the advent of graphic novels, now you do have comics that kids can read. And that's wonderful. It's like I you have I actually feel like it, it's harder to write literature for children. You know, you have to know be smart about writing and then know how to edit it down for kids and make it smart enough for them without you know, like keeping that balance. Without talking down to them. Yeah. I I've written a lot for kids. I've wrote a graphic novel series, excuse me, called um, The Chicagoland Detective Agency, a six-part graphic novel series, and a couple of other um, graphic novels also for younger readers. And really what it comes down to is you write what you want to write, you tell the story you want to tell, but without graphic sex and without graphic violence. And you know, if you can't tell a story without graphic sex and graphic violence, then you're not a very good writer. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I was thinking about that and the kids thing when you said that, you know, you're a writer. I mean, as a cartoonist, you are a writer. You're just employing sure. two different modes of writing at the same time. Vis yes. Visual writing and then word writing. 
So yes. It makes complete sense to me that you would then write, 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 oh, and have... Of course. Of course, because I know how the pages should look. I know how the panels should look. I know how to tell a story in panels, because I've done it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was thinking the other day about the idea of the narration boxes serving one purpose, either um, sometimes like the narration boxes representing the brain and the pictures representing the heart of the story, or flip-flop. Well, that's nice. Mm-hmm. That's I was, nice. I was thinking, because you know they have to work together, so one of them is going to show you the emotional truth, and one of them is going to show you just the factual. It's almost like your sun sign and your moon sign. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's like, what's happening on the surface? What's happening on the inside? Well, they have to work together, of course. Yeah, that's always hard for me. And I also recently been thinking about the idea of a page as a sentence and trying to just keep one idea on that page and see if... That's not... Yeah, those are just recent things I was thinking of. I was thinking about writing in comics and talking about it. Um, what What else did I want to ask you? Well, I want to ask you... Of course, what advice you have for young cartoonists or up-and-coming cartoonists, specifically women, because that is generally who listens to the podcast, I think. But not how do I get published, right? No, well, I just, I was like, please don't make me waste Trina Robbins' time. Tell you how to, <laughs> I mean, people, that's like the question that will haunt me to my grave, and I feel happy answering it, but I have already answered it. I bet you've answered it. Oh, God, yes. What advice? I mean, these are the best of times for women drawing comics. Um, And it will only get better. It's not going to get worse. Just each, each advance we make in every way, in every way, in, in, in control over our own bodies, in, in equal pay, every advance we make, we have to make sure it doesn't get worse. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had this... Do you know, Did you hear about what happened at Angoulême this year? Where of they, course I... Okay, good. Just for people that don't know, um, there was this huge grand prize, like a Lifetime Achievement Award, and they said the 30 names, and the 30 names were all men. And then they made it worse when people started yeah. boycotting them by saying, well... You know, we just can't help it. Not not that many women draw comics, you see. Yes, they said that. They said that. <laughs> they made it so much worse. It's really kind of amazing that they're, these, they're like dinosaurs, you know. There are still, just when you think that, that it's over, there are still men who are dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs. And history is not going to look kindly upon these dinosaurs. No, no. And I mean, it's already not looking kindly. But when that happened, I thought maybe there needed to be another feminist revolution or official kind of conglomeration of women cartoonists. Um, if that kind of thing happened, what, what do you think was useful? What would you bring? What do you think was useful from women's comics or from the, the thing that you built, the coalition that you built? You mean like if, if, if suddenly we erected barricades and shouted to the barricade sisters and had, had political meetings and stuff? Maybe, maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we really need that, uh, but if, if, if that happened, I would certainly attend the meetings. And if, if there was anything I needed to say, I would say it. But 
really there are so many wonderful women cartoonists now and they're all younger than me there isn't one woman cartoon well i mean the mainstream you know ramona Fraden and and marie severin but um they're doing it they're doing it you know it's a constant ongoing revolution i don't need to bring anything to it well um i think you already do just by existing well, I want to say this book is beautiful, so and I will sh- I will tell people about the books. I just got them the other day, and I couldn't believe it. I ran into my classroom with them, and the students all rejoiced because I had been, <laughs> I had been threatening to show these to them. Um, I do a slideshow for my students called Nicole's Favorite uh, Women and Queer Cartoonists. Oh, great! Because they're people that you don't hear about in the normal you know, comics classes or comics history classes. So I have a slideshow of people. Um, and then I, and I told them this book's coming out. I hope I get a copy while we're still in class. And they were so excited to see it. And I cannot wait to break out my 3d glasses. To yes. look at the 3d issue. <sighs> what a dream. So this is a total of about 700 pages of women's comics. You should tell your students or anybody who listens to this podcast who happens to live in the Bay Area that on April 12th, we're having a signing at Green Apple Books on the Park. That's in San Francisco on 9th Avenue. It's called On the Park because it's a block away from Golden Gate Park. Mm -hmm. Uh, That'll be at 730. And a lot of us original women, I always like to pronounce it women with an I, that will be there to sign the book and talk about it. Cool. Excellent. I will definitely tell people to go there. And then you guys will be at, S- you'll be at SPX. Is that true? Yes, I will be at SPX. And, and so will Fantagraphics. And so will the Women's Comics Collection, which means I'll be sitting there at the Fantagraphics booth signing copies. Excellent. And lastly, what are you working on next? Or are you working on anything next? What are your dream I, projects? Uh, Okay, well, one dream project is done and simply has, has to see publication, which it will see um, in time for the San Diego Comic-Con. And that is another book that I edited. Um, it's called Babes in Arms. And it's about, it's a collection of the work of four Golden Age women cartoonists uh, who during the war, as you may know, as I bet you do know, maybe everyone doesn't know, at that during the war, the Second World War, when all the guys went off to war, the women filled their places in all the industries, in the factories, making ships, making planes, driving trucks and buses that they had never done before. And the same thing happened in the comics industry, that for the first time, because all the guy cartoonists were young, they were draft age or they enlisted and they were overseas fighting, the women filled their places in the comic book publishers too. And so that of course there are more women drawing comics now than ever before. But at that point, there were more women drawing comic books than there had ever been before. So I picked four of the best golden age women cartoonists and collected their work in this book. It's published by Hermes Press. It's called Babes in Arms. And what they drew, it's called Babes in Arms because what they drew were beautiful, courageous women fighting the Axis, fighting the fascists and the Nazis, fighting the bad guys. And of course, these were women who didn't need to be rescued by the hero. Well, they were the heroes. 
So it's coming out in time for San Diego. I'll be there to sign it. It's really, I love the work of these women. So, okay. So that's a dream project that's done. That's awesome. Uh Uh-huh. My next dream project, do we have time for all this? Yeah. Okay. My next dream project I have just started working on. All right. I'm Jewish. My father came from a shtetl at the age of 16. He came to America from a shtetl in what is now Belarus. And he wrote in Yiddish. Um, He wrote for the Jewish language newspapers. Um, Didn't get paid. So it was a lot like being an underground cartoonist. And he wrote a book, which he published in 1938. a, A book in Yiddish called Aminian Yidden und Andra Zachen, which means a bunch of Jews and other stuff, loosely translated. And growing up, I knew my father wrote in Yiddish. I knew he had written a book, but I didn't want anything to do with it because as a kid, I wanted to be American. I didn't want to be, you know, some Yiddish-speaking person. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of really embarrassed or ashamed that my father wrote in Yiddish. <coughs> Okay, many years later, I'm grown up. I appreciate it now. And it's, you know, he died and it's too late. I figured the book is gone. I'll never find it. You know, a book in Yiddish? What? Where will I find it? My wonderful, wonderful grown daughter found it on the internet. It has been reprinted and you can get print on demand copies from Abe Books. So I got a bunch of copies and coincidentally, it's like this kind of a cosmic hand very often in things that happen to me in regards to to books and comics. Coincidentally, I had started taking Yiddish lessons simply because they were they were at my local LGBT center in the Castro and they were free. And I said, wow, a language I've always wanted to learn, you know, since I stopped being an obnoxious little kid. and so I got a hold of the book, but, you know, the fact that I'm taking Yiddish lessons doesn't mean I can translate it. I had it translated. I had it translated. And I can see that what it is, it's a bunch of kind of almost word portraits of about three quarters of the book takes place in his shtetl. <coughs> Sorry. It's about people from his shtetl that, you know, where he lived until he was 16. And the next part, which is about a quarter of the book, takes place in the Lower East Side in Brooklyn when he came to America. And I realized this has to be a graphic novel. So I've started working on it. I have a publisher, Hope Nicholson, who has published a couple of really, really good books and is currently publishing a book by uh, Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love her. I contributed to the book she did called Secret Love of Geek Girls, mm-hmm. which I really recommend it. It's a charming book, and I'm kind of happy with my little bitty contribution. Um, and she's she's the publisher. I, I, we're putting, we're doing a um, crowdfunding thing, Kickstarter, oh. to get money, because Hope is a really small publisher. Um, I already have... A cover artist. The cover artist is Willie Mendez, who was one of the earliest in 1970. The only two women drawing comics in San Francisco were me and Willie Mendez. She was a 
a contributor to It Ain't Me Babe Comics. She also has a couple of things, contributed a couple of pages to women's comics, but she has become a painter. Oh. Um, she has a gallery in Los Angeles, the Barbara Mendez Gallery. Uh, her art is perfect. What I wanted for the cover, I thought and thought and I thought what I really want for the cover is Chagall. But alas, Chagall is dead. So I thought, okay, who alive would be perfect? And I realized it was Willie. And she ha- we have the contract. I haven't even sent it to her yet. I just received it this morning oh. from Nicholson. But she, she, yes, she wants to do it. And I know she'll go for the contract. Um, the artists, I don't want to, because we can't afford until we get some money from Kickstarter. We can't really afford to pay them. I just want to know that they're committed to the book. Mm-hmm. So we have one artist who is doing a story on spec from the book, and that is my partner, Steve Lealoha, because how could he say no? <laughs> I, I'm, you know, but he's a great guy anyway, and he's doing, he's doing one of the stories so that we will have a cover and one story to show when we get the other artists. And I'm figuring 2017 as a publication date. That's great. Awesome. I'm very happy with it. I'm really thrilled with it. I'm so happy to hear about your dream projects. Yes. Um, Is there, are there any last words for my listeners? These are wonderful times. I think I just said that these are the best of times for women drawing comics. So, you know, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy to to have all these wonderful women. And by the way, they're all so talented that it's a good thing I stopped drawing because I could never compete with these women. Wow. Trina Robbins, you are welcome in my house. I want to put a, <laughs> I want to put a <laughs> sign in my window. When I, when I pass your house and need to use the bathroom. I'll, I'll make remember. you a cup of coffee. Great. Maybe some water. I'll say, sister, you are welcome in my house. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for talking to me for my podcast. It was my pleasure. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of Stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris producer Ponyo and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever. But in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Big 
thank yous this week go to Crystal Kalinowski, Elizabeth Greenhill, Madison Kreckel, I hope I said your name right, and Shoshana Ruth Wechter. Thank you for being friends to the show and friends to Ponyo. Here is an unpaid advertisement and complete endorsement for the magazine Butch is Not a Dirty Word with my friend Esther Godoy. You have a new issue of your magazine. I do, I do. We launched issue two of Butch is Not a Dirty Word uh, during March this year, so it's finally up and online and ready for everybody to buy and download and whatnot. Um, Issue two, we're focusing on family, so it's the family edition. Um, I think a part of the reason for doing, for focusing in on this topic is that I slash we really wanted to... um, to showcase butch people as, um, I think there's such a stereotype that comes with being butch. Um, I have said before that it's often like a very negative one. It's often of somebody uh, who's very stern or alone or lonely or like grotesque physically. Um, not a lot of positive things. So I guess a part of focusing on family was to showcase butchers um, existing in their social networks and Um, in their social spaces with people that they love and care about and with people who love and care about them, Um, just showcasing them as like real-life human people um, far, far away from that stereotype. Uh, That's the best I can explain it verbally. I think a a better way to get a better idea about it is to grab a copy of the issue itself. Um, or just jump online and have a look at the bio. I'm, I'm never, I'm never much good in, in spoken word. So people can go to butchersnotadirtyword.com. Yeah, butchersnotadirtyword.com. Uh, that'll give you a link to our online store. Um, and we update the Instagram pretty regularly. So it's great to find us on there as well, because there's a whole lot more fun stuff happening there. I'm, I love this issue. It's very beautiful, but I have to tell you, I'm a little excited about the next issue. Uh-huh. Which is going to be intergenerational. I know. The next issue is going to be awesome. We've started shooting photos of uh, very young butchers, so under 24, and uh, elder butchers, so over 50. Um, and we're sort of having those stories bounce off of each other and to um, just examine the differences in those experiences. It's going to be really, really cool, and I've met some incredibly lovely people already. Great. Okay, so they can get the family issue now. Um, yeah. They can look forward to the intergenerational issue. And is issue one available anywhere? It certainly is. Uh, Again, via the website, on the online store, jump on and you can download that one. Thanks. Esther, thanks for coming on the podcast to tell me about your magazine and to ask me these really incredible questions. (laughs) My pleasure. Have a good evening. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.